We've been working our way through the Gospel of John since um, the beginning of December. Uh, it's actually taken a couple of week break, so we're jumping uh, back in today. So we're going to look in a few minutes at just the first part of, uh, of John chapter 6. Imagine a, a patriotic hero, maybe a George Washington or an Abraham Lincoln, and then combine that, that patriotic hero with a religious leader. You know, maybe a Jonathan Edwards or a Billy Graham who's with international and national influence amongst the people. Now imagine that this hero is a, a literal conduit between a nation and its God, delivering messages directly from God himself while leading the nation out of one of his greatest crises in all of its history. The picture that you just imagined is is just starting to approach the level of status and fame and importance that Moses held among the Hebrew people in the days and years of their escape from Egypt and their wandering in the wilderness. They were awaiting permission to enter the promised land and take possession of their God-given inheritance. You know, as we study the, the life and mission of Jesus in the Gospel of John, we've, we've got to understand that there were many Israelites who rightly were expecting that the coming Messiah would be in that vein of a, a new Moses. But the question is, do they understand Moses correctly and what he was pointing to? And so, you know, we, we, we see that they were looking for a national and religious leader who would lead them out of the bondage to the Romans, the way that Moses had led their ancestors out of bondage in Egypt. And so the question is, is Jesus that kind of Moses? What role does Jesus play? How does Jesus... Um, you know, it looked like Moses in that sense. As we, at the end of chapter 5, we heard Jesus make a reference to Moses. He tells the Jewish leaders, he said, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he, for Moses, wrote of me. That's what Jesus said to them. Now we can imagine their response. We aren't told directly their response. We can imagine their response would be, If we believe Moses, what do you mean, if we believe Moses? We are the people of the law. Remember, these were the Jewish leaders. They loved the law more than anything. Sure, they love Moses. He's the lawgiver. Do they believe Moses? Yes, they believe Moses. He's the great prophet, the one who was sent by God to lead their ancestors out of slavery, out of Egypt. And say, of course we believe him. He's the lawgiver. We love the law. We love everything about it. But Moses was talking about you? They wouldn't like to say to Jesus? Yeah, right. Moses wasn't talking about you. We're going to kill you because you're a blasphemer claiming to be God and claiming to be Moses, that Moses was talking about you. And so we know that's the setting as we enter into chapter 6. Here in chapter 6, we see John recording some scenes from Jesus' life to show that he is the Messiah who is like Moses. But he isn't simply like Moses. He's claiming to be better than Moses. The one to whom Moses was pointing. The fulfillment of all of Moses' ministry was pointing to Jesus. Moses wasn't an end in himself. He was leading to something fuller. What was he leading to? To Jesus. He was pointing to people and pointing to us as we read the Old Testament. Pointing us to Jesus. That was scandalous for many of the Israelites in Jesus' day. Let me read for you. I'm going to read John chapter 6 verses 1 through 21. Uh, if you'll give great attention to the reading of the very word of God. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got, onto a, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. They were glad to take him, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land of which they were going. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Would you open it up for us this morning and give us insight into your truth, into who we are, and that we might know ourselves rightly, and then to know you and know who you are, that we would know you rightly that we would walk with you rightly all the days of our lives because you have come to work amongst us today. Thank you for being our God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so what we get in John chapter 6, in the, in the whole chapter, it's the longest chapter in the, in the entire uh, book of Gospel of John. What we get in John 6 are puzzle pieces which are being put together to reveal how Jesus is like Moses and, and even greater than Moses. Great crowds here were traveling towards Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And some of that crowd has heard that Jesus is doing miracles, and they heard that Jesus was out here in this wilderness place. He had gone off with his disciples to pray, we, we learn in some of the other Gospels. This is the only story uh, that's told, actually told in all four Gospels of um, Jesus walking on the water, at least. Uh, but we know because he was out in the wilderness that, that he... That he, um, the people heard that, and so they went to him. And so there's large crowds visiting Jerusalem without any way to get food for themselves necessarily. They're not there living. They're not working. Their resources are maybe limited. They're counting on mercy. And so they, they hear about Jesus, so they go to him, uh, and searching for, and many of them searching for food. Uh, there's 5,000 men, include, uh, plus their wives and children here, and they've heard about these miracles, and so they're coming hoping that they can learn from him and that he can meet their needs and even provide for them and their family here as they're, they're hungry and in need. Um, you know, just as God provided for the, the people as Moses led them in the wilderness, here we get the similar scenario, Jesus providing for this group of people who are here in this wilderness sort of place. We know that in the Old Testament, remember, there was manna given from heaven. Each day as they were walking around in the wilderness, they were wondering, where's our food going to come from? How are we going to be sustained? And they were groaning and complaining, but yet God gave them bread from heaven 
on a daily basis. Exactly what they needed. They were to hold not let anything be left over, but to consume it all, because he was giving them exactly what they needed, their daily bread, we would say. Here in the same sense, we see Jesus work a similar miracle. Remember, it was Moses that was leading him, through whom, in a sort of way, that, that miracle in the Old Testament was provided. Here we see the miracle coming through, through Jesus. And so we notice that um, just as God provided for them now, he's going to provide for them, them here in this day. And we notice that John is still whispering in our ear. We've talked about this, that John is the one gospel that kind of pulls us aside along the way and gives us sort of the insider story. He sort of whispers in our ear what's going on. And so when Jesus says, you know, to Philip, who lived nearby, he was from a, a town near this wilderness where they're at, he said, Philip, do you think you can get us some food, basically? And Philip says, 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough food to feed all this crowd. Now, denarii was a day's wage. So he basically is saying, we could work for eight or nine months and not have enough food to feed all these people. And so it essentially Philip's saying, this is impossible. But Jesus, but John tells us, that Jesus was just testing him because he already knew what he was going to do. Jesus knows he's going to feed this people, that he's going to work a miracle. But he wants the disciples to see that it is a miracle coming up, that this isn't humanly possible. It's impossible to feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. And so he knows what he's going to do. He wants them to feel the enormity of this problem. Um, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, comes along and finds a little boy with five barley loaves and 12 fish. This is just basic bread and two fish. And at first we think, wow, look at the faith of Andrew. He's brought these five loaves of bread and these two fish. He believes that God's going to do this. But then he plays his card, right? He says, but what are they for so many? He's doubting. How's this going to happen? So Philip's doubting. Andrew's doubting. We can assume all the others are doubting. Everyone there is probably doubting. But Jesus doesn't doubt. To Jesus, this is simple. The way that this miracle is explained is significant for the simplicity of it all. Jesus says, tell the people to sit down in the grass. And then he utters a simple prayer, probably just a rabbinic prayer of thanksgiving that would have been said before most any meal. And then he starts passing out bread and fish. No huge show, no announcement of what he's going to do, no proclamation that God's about to wow you all. He just starts passing out bread and fish until everyone's been served. Everyone. 5,000 men plus women and children. And everyone gets their fill. But the greatest aspect, and I think probably what is the main point of this, of how John's telling the story, the main point that John wants to make in the telling of this story, uh, is that the greatest aspect of this miracle, you know, it may be overlooked. Notice that at the end of this miracle, there is exactly 12 baskets. And the word that he uses there is lunch pail. So there's basically 12 lunch pail sized baskets. So enough for one person. There are 12 baskets of food, of bread remaining. Exactly enough for the apostles to each have their needs met. So he meets the needs of all the people. Remember, the apostles are at work. They're not worried about themselves at this point. They're passing out food. But then when they gather up all the scraps, all the bread that's left over, there's exactly enough for the 12 of them to eat. What's he doing? Meeting their needs exactly. The people, you know, notice what's going on. You know, well, we know that, that if a perceptive person, even on that day, would remember that the manna in the wilderness was exactly what they needed. Now this basket's of food, exactly what we need. And 
the people, people sort of notice what is happening. The crowd notices what is happening. At the end of this miracle, the people proclaim, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, the prophet referred to there is Moses. How do we know that? Because back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, uh, Moses said this. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so they're looking for this prophet like Moses. They're right to look for this prophet. And now the people are proclaiming, there's Moses. There's the one like Moses. So the crowds are getting it. And so they are, they're saying, Moses led us out of slavery. Now we're in slavery to the Romans. Here's Jesus. We're going to make him king. He's going to lead us out of slavery to the Romans, out of this bondage we're in to the Romans. But that's not why Jesus came. He came to give us a, a greater deliverance we'll talk about in a minute. And so Jesus doesn't hang around to be made king. It says he disappeared into the wilderness. Jesus goes off by himself to pray. He escapes the crowd. They don't even, you know, maybe they didn't even see him going. The apostles don't seem to know where he's gone or what he's doing. Jesus has just disappeared. This is one piece of this puzzle showing us how Jesus is like Moses. He provides for the people in the wilderness like Moses provided for the people in the wilderness. Another the piece of the puzzle is the second miracle we've read about. Uh, as night began to fall, the disciples began to gather for a trip across the sea to Capernaum. It's about a six-mile journey across from where they were across the sea uh, to, to Capernaum. And so after this earlier miracle, we said Jesus had disappeared just as they were starting to devise how to make him king. And as the disciples prepared for their trip, Jesus still hadn't returned. But the sun's going down. They've got to get going. So they get in the boat and take off. Remember, these are men, a lot of these disciples are men who have grown up on the water. They're professional fishermen. They're comfortable on the sea. And so they're, ro they're rowing their boat across the sea. They're going to six miles across, and you think, man, that's a long way. Well, to them, it probably wasn't. It's a short journey. They're used to this. This is what they do. But John tells us that a storm came upon them. The winds caused the waves to intensify. Uh, that They're going you know, up and down with the waves and, and whatnot. And so, but we don't get a sense that they were shocked by this, that this unsettled them. The, the disciples persevered. It says that they uh, had rowed three miles out into the sea. So it doesn't seem that the waves and the storms really intimidated them much at all. But in the midst of this storm, they look up and they see someone walking across the water like a ghost. The Gospel of Mark tells us it was like a ghost coming towards them. And then they become afraid. Now we understand this, right? You get this. You're out in the middle of the ocean and some guy comes walking towards you. Your first thought is not, oh, that's nice. It's what in the world is happening? There's a ghost coming. Is it a friendly ghost? Is it Casper? Is it a demon? Is it, what is this? And so here's this ghost coming and it says they were unnerved by this. You know, we, we get this. We've been through the storms of life. We grow in our ability to not flinch. As we go through hard things, we eventually grow in our ability to, to not flinch as much as the things tend to roll towards us. And these guys have lived on the sea. A storm's nothing to them. They expect storms. They're okay. Just persevere. We're going to row right through the storm. But when the unexpected comes, this guy walking on the water, what do we do? When the unexpected comes, what do, what do we do? We get afraid. We get fearful. Um, so, you know, and, and that was these guys. Fearful, afraid, wondering what's going on. Until Jesus speaks. Mark and Matthew tell us that Jesus said, take heart. 
it is I, do not be afraid. But John leaves off the preface, the take heart part. He says, Jesus just spoke, it is I, do not be afraid. So why does, does John leave that off? Well, I, I, it's a theory, not absolutely sure about this, but here's my theory, putting this, another piece into this Moses puzzle here. The Greek words here are were the common words that were used to, to, to identify someone. If you walked up to someone and kind of maybe surprised them or something, you would say, it is I. That's just a common greeting. Nothing special about the greeting that, that Jesus uses here in that culture. He says, oh, it's me, it's I. Don't be afraid. Remember, they were fearful, so he says, don't be afraid. But first, he says, it is I. Now, the literal translation of that Greek phrase is, I am. I am. That's a fair translation to say, it is I. But what he literally said was, I am. I am. In just a few chapters, we're going to see that John gives us a list of statements where Jesus identifies himself beginning with these words. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and on and on. There's, there's more. So maybe John is foreshadowing, in a sense, what is to come by emphasizing these words, leaving off the take heart to put emphasis on the I am part of this. Maybe he's foreshadowing the teaching that we're going to read in just a little bit. But remember, we've already said that John is teaching us in this passage how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Moses wrote about. Remember that in the most formative moment in, Jesus, in Moses' life, at the burning bush, the bush that wasn't consumed by fire, Remember, God spoke, him, spoke to him out of that bush and called him to his mission to tell him to go and lead his people out of Egypt. And what did Moses say at that point? What do I call you? Who do I tell them has sent me? And what did God say? I am. Tell them I am has sent you. The one. I am the one. The one true God. I am. That is my name. So throughout John's gospel, John seems to always be making a point to make sure that we know that Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh. Jesus is the embodiment of the great I am. So while it's not clear whether Jesus is simply greeting his disciples in the boat or if he's identifying himself as the great I am, what we do know is that the presence of Jesus in the boat made all the difference in the world. It says the seas calmed. The Mark and Matthew tell us the seas calmed. And then John tells us they were immediately at their destination. Is that another miracle or did they just get there in the confusion of all? I don't know. It seems like what he's doing is moving them quickly. But there's another miracle. They're there. He, the point being that Jesus delivers us through the storm. He delivers us through the sea. He takes us all the way home to our destination. John's helping us see that Jesus is the prophet who's come to fulfill the ministry of Moses. When do these Moses-centric miracles here occur? Well, they occur at Passover. Remember, it's the, probably the second Passover that Jesus has celebrated. That means there's one year left in his ministry before he goes to his final Passover and is, is killed. And so we're, we're here at Passover. Who instituted the feast of Passover? Well, God did through Moses. In Egypt, remember there was the, all the, the curses, and so they're, they're going to come, and the final uh, thing that's going to happen is God's going to kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And so he sent Moses to tell the people of Israel, 
if you don't, your firstborn's going to die unless you obey me. You need to take a lamb, and he gave all these detailed instructions for the lamb, and he said, take the blood of the lamb, paint it above your doorpost, and it, when the angel of death comes, if he sees the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, he will pass over your house, and your firstborn will live. And so the nation of Israel trusted God. They all slaughtered lambs. They painted their doorposts. And sure enough, the angel of death passed over them. And so they went on to celebrate this annually throughout, you know, in the future because they're celebrating this feast where God passed over their homes. The death that was, the death that was to come passed over them. And so the nation of Israel celebrates it annually. And so this was a big deal. That's why all these pilgrims are coming towards Jerusalem. That's why there's such great crowds here that Jesus has to feed and whatnot on his way. So the blood of the lamb had his uh, blood shed to protect the people of certain death there at the Passover. The importance of this becomes more apparent the further we get into John 6 because we'll look next week at how John says, how Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he starts taking this concept of bread. Remember, just having fed these people with bread and fish. But he takes this concept of bread and he says, I am the true bread you need. We talk about this often as we come to the table. The bread of the communion table represents the body of Christ. We'll see that teaching next week. We'll get into that a little deeper. Um, but he's setting this thing up. But the bigger picture here is that Moses' primary, primary role in the history of Israel was to deliver God's people from the land of slavery, to bring them to their future home. And it's in this role where we clearly see that Jesus is the new and better Moses, the one to whom the life and work of Moses was pointing. Moses delivered God's people from earthly bondage in Egypt. Jesus has come to deliver God's people from eternal bondage to sin. Moses, earthly deliverance. Jesus, eternal deliverance. Moses commanded the people to gather the manna that they might be fed on a daily basis. Jesus fed the people on the mountain exactly enough to satisfy their hunger. But then, as we see in the coming weeks, he promises to give them his own body as a sacrifice which will satisfy their spiritual longings forever. Their spiritual hunger will be, will be satisfied by the body of Christ. Moses led the people through the parted waters of the sea. After the Passover, they all gathered up their stuff. They took off and they crossed the Red Sea. God parted the waters with a strong wind. You think wind here in John 6 causing the turmoil at sea. Here in an Old Testament, there's a strong wind which divided the waters. They walked through on dry land. And then, of course, the enemy chasing them is submerged. The waters come upon them and kill them their enemy so that they are delivered to the far side of the sea safely. We think about Jesus who delivers his, his disciples on this boat through the storm to their destination on the far side of the sea. John's helping us see Jesus is the new and better Moses. And Jesus, like I said, walked across the water to rescue them. And he also leads us all through the troubles of this world that we might reach those eternal shores of glory. Moses, as we mentioned, commanded the people to sacrifice a lamb to cover their doorposts with blood that the angel of death might pass over them. But we've already seen in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. He's come to shed his blood so that whoever is covered with his blood, remember we saw a picture of that in baptism this morning, as the baptismal waters come down signifying the covering of blood, upon the person, the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus Christ, that Jesus comes and his blood covers the sins of the people so that death, which we deserve, the wages of sin is death, might be passed over. 
Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Through his blood, we're actually taken care of. We're covered. Our sins are covered for eternity. Jesus, the new and better Moses. Jesus wants us to see his power. He wanted the crowds to see the leftover bread and recognize his power. He wanted the disciples to see him walking on the water and calming the wind so that they would recognize his power. And he wants us to hear these stories. These aren't just nice stories for Sunday school. God's trying to teach us that Jesus is our great deliverer. That he is the one who comes into the storms of our lives, be it our practical needs like hunger and thirst, or our momentary needs like the storms that come upon us. And Jesus is the provision, provision that we need for our greater issues, our eternal problems, our eternal hunger, the eternal storms of life that are going to come upon us. And Jesus is the one who takes us through those storms, bears the brunt of that storm upon himself. He takes the punishment that we deserve upon himself and delivers us righteous, free and clean. Because his blood has paid for our sinfulness. He has taken the wrath that we deserve upon himself. He's taken all that storm upon himself so that we're delivered through the storm. It doesn't mean we won't face the waves and the winds. But we know that Jesus is there. And what does he promise? I will be with you to the end of the age. I will carry you all the way home. All the way to your destination. Jesus wants us to hear these stories and know that he has the power to do what we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot pay our sin debt. We need a substitute. We need a savior. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. You are merciful and kind and compassionate. And God, you've promised to carry us through the waters. You've promised to carry us through our spiritual hunger. You've promised to provide for our greatest needs, which is the need to be saved from the penalty of our sin. Thank you for loving us. We know that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for loving us. From before the foundation of the world, you have loved us. Help us to respond to that love by loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then looking outside of ourselves to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that you might be glorified in us and through us, and all the world might sing your praises. Thank you for being our God. It's in your son's glorious name that we pray. Amen.